You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Instead of having one career path, on average, the average American now has two to three career paths throughout their life. So if you ask yourself, what if I never did anything like this again? Would I be able to create a different career? Would I be able to find something else? And I think the interesting idea is don't jump in the deep end without taking swimming lessons first. To the self-made and the self-sufficient, our partner, Edelman Financial Engines, can tailor investment solutions for the wealth that you're building. As a Her Money listener, you'll get a complimentary financial plan when you call 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com slash hermoney. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for being with us today on Her Money. One of my favorite topics that we cover on this show, I know all of you feel the same way, is our careers. And in the last year, we have spent a lot of time talking about the future of women at work because it has never been more important. According to the most recent data, male workers have now regained all the jobs all the jobs that they lost due to COVID, but there are still 1.1 million women who left the workforce and never came back. And we know that getting these talented, capable, amazing women back into gratifying jobs that they can thrive in is one of the best ways that we can move toward closing the gender wage gap, the women's investing gap, and all the gaps that disproportionately impact women. But we can't talk about getting women back to work without talking about what that work needs to look like. Because work, as we've known it for the past hundred years or maybe longer. It just wasn't built for women. We have Henry Ford to thank for the five-day nine-to-five work week, which he standardized in 1926. And women were not considered in Ford's equation, nor was the health and the wellness of employees. It was a work week designed just to maximize profit and productivity. And only today in 2022, are companies starting to look at it with a more critical eye. And I suspect that a big reason for this newfound introspection is because we now have more women in corporate leadership positions than ever before. According to the State of Women survey for 2022 by Her Money and our partners at the Alliance for Lifetime Income, 39% of women say that a four-day work week is either important or very important to them when considering a new job opportunity. And just last week, a bill was proposed in California that could change the work week from 40 hours to 32 hours, enabling about three and a half million people to move permanently to a four-day work week without having to make up for it with wage cuts or longer hours. And when Catherine and I were doing research for this show, we discovered that Newsweek is now maintaining a running list of every single company in America that has moved to a four-day work week with details on how to get hired. And of course, we will link that in the show notes. But how sticky are these changes really going to be? Are we really going to emerge from COVID with new standards for work and new options for flexibility that previously we could only dream about? 
I have many, many questions. I'm sure that you do too. And I'm really excited to dive into all of them with Shannon Monson. She is the founder and CEO of New Work, a platform that manages talent with flexible work for the new economy. She is a three-time founder of seven-figure businesses and a community growth expert who consults for some of the fastest growing companies in the world. Shannon, welcome. I'm so excited to be here. I was listening to you talk and had this whole range of emotions from anger that this is the way it is and excitement that it's going to be better. So I'm very excited to talk about this today. Oh, well, we are excited too. But tell us a little bit about you first. How did you get your start? And that term you use, the new economy, what does that actually mean to you? What I'm really excited about listening to you talk about all the women that left the workforce during the pandemic. As women, we take on a extra majority of household tasks. We have the main responsibility of childbearing. It is still very much the same as it was in the 1920s in a lot of ways. And that's actually how my career started. So I was raised in a very traditional home with traditional gender roles and found myself in a position where I had a new baby and I was supporting both my husband and my baby. And it cost me more for childcare than I was making in the workplace. And that was almost 10 years ago. And I found creative ways to make money so that I could support my family and create work on my own terms. And I think that what's really exciting about moving forward is technology has changed so much that this is something that is available to everyone. Forget you know, changing the nine to five work week. I want to know why do we need to go to the office every single day? Why is it 32 hours? I have so many questions. If you think about where technology was a hundred years ago, when the nine to five work week was normalized, silent films were just coming out. Oh my right? goodness. Yeah. Silent films. Now we all walk around with computers in our pockets. There's no reason for us to work 40 hours. There's a reason for us to work 32 hours, if you want to ask me. And so I think we have this really exciting opportunity to ask, okay, just because that's the way it's always been, doesn't mean it's the way it always has to be. And if we as women and minorities and people that this traditional workplace was not built for have a voice and an opportunity to change it, what would that look like? And that's where the idea for new work really came from. Well, how does it work and who is it for? So Newark is a platform that matches talent with projects for the new economy. So one of the biggest shifts that we've seen since the pandemic is a shift from shopping retail in person to online. And every single commerce business turned into an e-commerce business, right? If you had a brick and mortar, you needed to also have some sort of online shopping capabilities to survive. And so we saw this huge increase in a demand for jobs that didn't exist a year ago, two years ago. We saw a huge need for people to learn these skills that you couldn't have learned in college because the softwares to run these companies are just popping up. And that was our vision for new work. Okay, if we have all these people who don't wanna work traditional nine to fives, don't want 40 hour work weeks and big brother looking over their shoulder, asking them when they get their 15 minute break, what would that look like? What if we could work from home on our own terms in softwares and tech that we're learning on YouTube and on our phones. And so those are the kinds of projects we're matching at New Work. The tech first 
trend-focused job, the person that's hungry and creative to learn and wants to learn new digitally native skills, and the company that needs to figure out how do we get with, I don't even want to say the 21st century, but how do we get with the times and upgrade our company processes and projects to what people are demanding and asking for? When you say on your own terms, it's such an interesting phrase. I mean, I wonder if that's really where we're headed long term, because I feel like work has historically, it's been on everybody else's terms, but your own. I was one of the very, very few and very fortunate women to have flexibility early in my career. I was a reporter at Smart Money Magazine when I had my first child, and there was another woman in the office who was already working a couple of days from home. And I asked if I could have that deal too. And my boss said, sure, he was going to be a really good place for working moms to be. But he was highly unusual at that point. And I knew other women who felt like they couldn't even ask for that flexibility at the same company. So, you know, I'm wondering, do you think this is here to stay? Do you think that as companies sort of fight to bring people back into the office, the company is going to lose and the employee is going to win? I love hearing you talk about, you know, how it was visionary and revolutionary and how you were able to be part of this so long ago. And it brings up immediately for me, and it worked. You did that so long ago, and look at your successful career. Your boss was innovative, and that was a win for the company. That wasn't just a win for you, it was also a win for the company. And I think that's what we can shift our mindset instead of thinking about profit and who's gonna win and you know, taking this attitude towards sticking it to the man. Instead, if we say, okay, companies need results. That's how the world runs. And humans want autonomy. We watched last year as 38 million Americans quit their jobs. They were very clear. We don't want ping pong tables. We don't want better benefit packages. We want to work on our own terms and wake up when we want to wake up. And so it's the shift of instead of tracking work based on hours and paying people per hours, why are we not paying people for results? If you think about the C-suite executives. I can't even fathom somebody asking, you know, the CEO of a company the hours they worked yesterday. No, they get performance reviews based off of the results of the board, right? So it's a misaligned incentives because you have all these people at the very top of the corporate ladder that are already being rewarded based on results. Why is everybody else being rewarded based off of when they clock in and clock out? It's not fulfilling as a human being, and we're already seeing people push back against this. So one in four Americans is already a part of the gig economy, and one in 10 of them, it actually makes up for their full-time income. So I believe deeply that this is going to be the way that it is in the future, because we have the power to say no. I don't need your job. I think we have the power to a certain degree, right? I mean, what we see right now is that 43% of full-time working Americans have a side hustle. By 2027, freelancers are projected to make up about half of the workforce. And yet I worry about those freelancers. They have no benefits right? They don't have somebody matching what they put into a 401k. They don't have somebody supplementing their health insurance. Their safety net, their protection plan 
is really lacking. So when you put into the same soup your optimistic picture and my slightly more pessimistic picture, where do we end up? I love it. I say yes and. Okay, so I agree with you completely that you should not have to have a full-time job to have basic human rights like healthcare, right? And if we look at the way our benefit system was set up, I think that there's going to be a huge shift in that too. And we have ambitious goals at New Work to create an opportunity for freelancers to have some of those benefits as well, to change that. My husband is about to be a doctor in just a few weeks, and he's very much in this traditional system of work. And it's clearly broken. If you look at the statistics, the benefit system is broken. The healthcare system is broken. I think we can agree on that looking at the statistics. So. I come from, we can either say, well, it's not working. The only ways to do it is the way we used to do it. Or, hey, let's put our minds together. Let's ask how we can all be successful. How can we create win-win scenarios? And at the same time, I am a human who has never had (laughs) health insurance, has never had benefits, has never had a real, a quote unquote, real job. I've never been a W-2 employee. I've created so much more safety and wealth for myself than almost every single one of my friends that took the traditional route. So we are buying into this lie that that's the only path to safety and that's what I want to shift. So how have you done that? By having really great people on my team educating me on how to create wealth. And that's where I think that education is becoming I'd like to say a lot more free, not the Ivy League education, but we can all go to the University of YouTube. I went to the University of Google. (laughs) A joke is my favorite joke. And why are we as both companies and humans not teaching people basic financial skills, educating them, creating financial literacy? Why is a 401k match the only path to safety? And I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer, but I think it needs to change. No, I'm not saying that a 401k match is the only path to safety. And I agree with you. It needs to change. And I'm very, I'm optimistic about what the states are doing that force small employers, we now have about 10 states that are mandating an auto IRA, right? I think that's amazing. Get people to contribute. The only way that big employers were able to get the masses in their companies to contribute to the 401k in the first place was by automatically enrolling them and automatically Mm -hmm. escalating their contributions. And so we need a system that does the same for gig workers, that does the same for small employers. Behavioral finance has taught us that. But between today and the point that we're actually there, I'm wondering, how did you create that protection plan for yourself? Did you fund an IRA? Did you go online and buy your own health insurance? Like, how did you become so well protected? I love that question. And I love this perspective. Thank you for pushing me. I think we have a long way to go. I agree with you. I think we have a long way to go. Personally, I've taken a ton of initiative to learn the things that a company might have either provided or created for me and to either learn them myself or find people who knew them. So yes, I have an IRA, I have a 401k, I have investment accounts. I have taken the money I made as a freelancer and business owner and invested it. I've bought into healthcare on the open marketplace, right? I've done those things, but it's been very difficult and it shouldn't be. I agree. And I think that that's something I'm excited about the opportunity for us to change. 
No, I totally agree. But I do think as people are quitting their jobs and then going back into them, there was a headline in the New York Times again today about how all those people who left their jobs, yeah, they're back at work. So I think as we move around, just keeping these basic benefits in mind is something that we really need to think about because it's important. I want to dig into the four-day work week. I want to go there specifically. But before we do, you know, as we're talking about financial independence, we have a lot of self-made and self-sufficient women in our audience. And our partner, Edelman Financial Engines, is out there willing to tailor investment solutions for the wealth that you are building and growing and protecting. Their investment management approach is based on Nobel Prize winning research. Their planners don't sell products to earn commissions, period. That's very important information to know. So wherever you are going next, it's a good idea to see how they can help you get there. And again, you can schedule a free appointment with an advisor to get a complimentary financial plan by calling 833-304-PLAN or visiting planefe.com slash her money. Okay, the four day work week. I am talking with Shannon Monson, the CEO of New Work. We're hearing a lot about how much people want flexibility overall, but the four day work week specifically. What's so intriguing about this and how is it manifesting in most companies? Okay, so I think what's really exciting to me as a entrepreneurial, ambitious spirit, I've studied a lot about productivity. And there is a lot of research that shows that you hit a certain point of hours worked and suddenly your output decreases. So it's not, and this makes sense logically, right? If I work around the clock, I'm not going to put out as much good, creative, valuable work as if I, you know, rest and take periods of time away. So I think what we're seeing pop up right now is a lot of summer Fridays year round, a lot of companies saying you can work from home two days a week and come into the office two days a week and that being ongoing their schedules. And I think it's really creating more of a work-life balance that you're seeing a lot of people say, hey, we didn't sign up to just work all day and then die. And I love it. And I think a lot of companies are listening. And I think sometimes we have very black and white thinking about either you have a full-time job or you are an Uber driver. There's kind of no in-between or or you're an entrepreneur. And I'm a big supporter of the side hustle. You know, if you have a a job that you love and four days a week you give it your all and you bring your top creative work and you really want the company and the team to win, Why can't you also have a side hustle you do on Saturdays, right? That turns into part of that long-term wealth plan for you. And that's where I think the shift of just because you have employment with a company, they don't own you and control your hours and every second you clock in and clock out, like that's archaic thinking. How do you know if your company might be able to foster a four-day workweek environment? And how do you tee it up with your manager if they're not even thinking about it? Yeah, that's a great question. If you are just applying and hiring for jobs, you should be able to feel out in the application process whether this is a company, like you said, I had a boss that was, he thought differently and he was really willing to have creative ideas about what this could look like. So if you're just applying to a new job, I highly recommend those are questions you ask. 
How many days a week does your team come into the office? What's the average hours? How much time off does your team take? Not just how many paid vacation days do you have, but great. And how much average paid vacation time do each of your team members take, right? And asking those exploratory questions to find out what is the company culture. And if you are in a company already where this is really not even on their radar, I would suggest setting up a meeting and saying, hey, I have some really exciting ideas for how we as a company can grow and positioning everything as ways the company and the team can win. When you pitch any idea as, I wanna stay home on Friday because you don't get to say if I'm wearing pants or not, that's not a very strong negotiation, as opposed to if you come to the table and say, hey, the marketing team and I were talking and we were thinking we have our best creative days on Fridays and what if instead of, right? And you come up with a plan and a pitch that just says, hey, are you open? to trying it for a month. If we get results and we hit all of our numbers, would you be open to continuing it? And then you're not putting the pressure on them to make a decision. You're just saying, what about doing a trial run? There's nothing lost. If your company comes back and says, yeah, no, that's not us. There've been some big companies that are really very aggressive about getting people back in the office right now. And some of them have recanted, but some of them haven't. How do you know when it's time for your own sanity to just think about finding a new job? There's two things that come to mind immediately. And the first is I'm always asking, how can you make yourself so valuable that they are willing to be flexible because you were more valuable to them than somebody else? So are you putting in the not just traditional continuing education, but are you learning new skills on the side? Are you bringing new ideas to the table? By the way, the kinds of skills you would naturally be learning in your side hustle, right? So the first thing is make yourself valuable so you have leverage in these conversations. And then the second thing I would say is really looking at the current labor market and remembering you do have power. I have been in so many meetings lately where all the companies are talking about is how hard it is to hire, find, and retain talent. You can't, I feel like, read the news without seeing how hard it is to find talent and the labor shortage. So remembering that there's, what, 8 billion people in the world, millions of opportunities. If you have your heart set on working for this one company and this is it, well, then maybe you need to be more flexible about what that looks like. But if you think about how big the world is, how many new skills you could learn. There's really interesting research coming around, especially like Gen Zs and millennials and these new younger generations, how instead of having one career path, on average, the average American now has two to three career paths throughout their life. So if you ask yourself, what if I never did anything like this again? Would I be able to create a different career? Would I be able to find something else? And I think the interesting idea is don't jump in the deep end without taking swimming lessons first, right? Start preparing yourself for those next things. Have the side hustle, do the extra gig things, learn the tech stuff so that when it comes time that you say, hey, either you got to adjust how we work at this company or I'm out, you have options. And that's really the, the thing that gives you power in my opinion. You said earlier in the show, people don't want ping pong tables. They want autonomy. What does autonomy mean to women in 2022? I think for women, what's really powerful is the ability to create the life that you want. 
I grew up where you had the choice as a woman to be a stay-at-home mother or a working career woman. And when I grew up, I thought those were my two paths. And I came from a very conservative religious background, but even me working and being a mom was just so hard for my mind to comprehend when I was starting my career and my path in motherhood. And so I think what's really exciting is it doesn't have to look a certain way. Whatever you want your career to look like, however many careers you want to have, whatever you want your personal life to look like, you actually get to decide for yourself instead of having so much restriction and oppression by the societal standards for what you're supposed to do. I love that answer. When I started my career, it was mostly moms who were taking one of two paths. You were either staying at home or you were working and there was tension. And today I think there's a lot less tension. I think I think women are more accepting of the paths that other women choose. But I also think there's this sense that you can kind of have an in-between road, right? That you can work some, be home some, work from home some, right? It's a little bit more of a smorgasbord, which I think is a great thing. You're such a beautiful example of this. Like there's so many of people like me who looked up to the working mother and said, is that even possible for me? Like, I want that. Can I do that? And you, I mean, I think about how hard it's been for me as a working mother, you know, in the past 10 years and what the generations of women before have done for us to open these doors. Like, I want to honor that. You know, my grandma worked at a call center and moved out of the house when she was 18 in a time that it was kind of crazy for women to live alone or work. And I think, it's an important time as a woman, if you are starting your career or ready to pivot in your career, just honoring the women that have made this possible and fought so hard for this. Like I'm getting chills thinking about this because it's our responsibility to keep fighting for it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Last question for you. You have started multiple successful companies. You've grown as a leader. You've grown as an earner. As you look back, what advice would you give to your younger self? I think some of the best advice I can give is don't be afraid to do things differently. Some of the best things in my life have come from saying, I don't think that that's right for me. And I've gotten pressure from the outside world to say, oh, well, you're not doing it the right way. And I think the more you listen to your gut and create happiness for yourself, the more successful you're going to be. And success, you get to determine what that looks like. And I think just letting go of what society says you're supposed to do or your family or your friends say is right or wrong, that is the best piece of advice I wish I could go back and tell myself, like, it's okay that they don't get it. Just you are the only human that has to wake up with your life every single day. You deserve to really love it. And we love that. This has been such a great conversation. Shannon Monson, the company is New Work. I want to spell it for everybody. We'll put it in the show notes, of course, but it's N-U-U Work. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was such an honor. Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU measures its success by empowering members to achieve their financial goals. The credit union wants your banking experience to be authentic and to be friendly, which is why its products let you bank in confidence and its caring service gives you peace of mind. See if you're eligible for what BCU has to offer at www.bcu.org. 
And Catherine Tuggle joins us now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. I love this discussion. I love all the dialogue that we were having around the four-day work week and women being able to get more flexibility in a post-COVID world because the workplace needed to change desperately. Mm -hmm. And if the pandemic is what it took to get us there, then I'm going to try and see that as the silver lining of the last two years. I think you're right. I mean, I think back to how unusual it was when I asked to work a couple of days a week from home when I was a new mom working at Smart Money. And my boss, to his credit, was like, yeah, we're going to be a great place for working moms. But it's not just working moms who need that kind of flexibility. It's all of us in our very busy lives. You know, you and I have had this discussion. I'm on the fence about the four-day work week. I don't think I could do it in my own life. I tend to work like six days, which is, I think, closer to what most founders do. And that's my choice. But gosh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not there yet. Yeah. I I also think that more companies are reevaluating what a four-day work week means because it doesn't necessarily have to mean that everybody gets Friday off. It could mean that half of your staff work a Friday and half of your staff work a Monday, or everybody gets every other Friday off. And you and I, back in the early days of Her Money, we used to do a thing where we were closed with an asterisk between Mm -hmm. Christmas and the new year. And you and I basically just kept the trains running for that week-long period between Christmas and the new year and, you know, kept on moving. But for the most part, we were able to relax. So... I think every company's got to figure it out for themselves, but it makes me very hopeful for what women will be able to count on in future. Absolutely. And just the fact that employers are willing and mostly happy to have these conversations. I just think it's encouraging. I remember about a year ago, maybe a year and change, AARP did some research with employers. They surveyed about 2,000 employers and asked whether they were willing to have these conversations about flexibility. And overwhelmingly, the answer was, yeah, you know, even if we don't have a formal policy, we will talk about it. And I think that's the overall message. Yeah, totally. The dialogue is open. Mm-hmm. 100%. Speaking of dialogue, we've got some massive questions today <laughs> um, in a good way. So let's dig in. We have some serious dialogue happening this week. Our question comes to us from Katie. She is a self-described millennial in transition. She writes, Hi, Jean. I'm a longtime listener, first-time writer. I'll start by saying the expected. I love your show. I consider it life-changing. Oh, well, thank you, Katie. That Let me just, we just have to say thank you for that life-changing. That's a really nice compliment. So thank you for that. And thank you for listening. Yeah, life-changing. Love those words. She goes on, I don't believe in regrets, but I do wish I had found your show sooner. Here's why I'm writing. I'm a 33-year-old woman living in a high-cost city, Washington, D.C. I work in the higher education sector, and I just left a job I loved after eight fun and rewarding years. I left because I was no longer feeling challenged, and I felt I had gone as far as I could possibly go in terms of salary, and I know I'm worth more. I'm excited to be starting a new job that will be fast-paced, challenging, and fun this month. There's so many changes in my life, I thought it was time to write. My questions... Number one, in my old job, I was in a state pension plan. This may seem funny, but I worked for a state entity of Ohio in their D.C. office, so I paid into the traditional pension plan. I have over 11 years and nearly $93,000 sitting in that account. I have two options. 
The first is to let it sit, which could be especially smart if I return to Ohio for employment, which is not entirely out of the question. I would also still receive somewhat of a pension, even if I never touch it again and never return to employment with the state of Ohio, though with only 11 years, it wouldn't cover me fully. My second option would be to transfer it to my new employer's account, which is a 401k. My question, for now, because I'm young and I could go back to working for a state of Ohio entity, I'm letting it sit. Do you agree with this decision? Let's just pause. And I know Katie has more than one question. So let's just take them one by one. Yeah, I agree with this decision 100%. I have some small pensions from jobs that I had early in my life, places where I only spent about 10 years and one of them where I spent even less. And I am so happy to have those. I can't even tell you. I mean, when my husband and I run the math on our retirement, we take Social Security and then we add on his small pensions and my small pensions, and we get to this monthly nut in guaranteed income that we know is going to be with us for the rest of our lives. So even though it seems like it's a small amount of money, I'm all for pensions when you can grab them. So sorry, I don't know if I know which way you're saying to go. So even though it seems like a small amount of money, I agree with your decision. Let it sit there. It may continue to grow, which would be great. That's what happened in my case. And you'll know that this paycheck, which will last the rest of your life because that's how pensions work, will just be something that you can add to your Social Security and count on in a guaranteed sort of way. I love that. Yeah, I have a pension that I had after working just six years at a company. And every time I check it, I think the last time I looked at it, it's going to give me like $600 a month in retirement. And I'm just letting it sit. But I'm happy with that. I'm happy to have it because you know it's guaranteed. And we're in the middle of all of these discussions about guaranteed income and how and when people should take a chunk of money that they've accumulated in their 401k and use it to create a paycheck which would last the rest of their lives. If you've got pensions from other sources, you have to do this less. And so it makes life easier down the road. Definitely. Okay, going on to her second question. She writes, the only other retirement account I have is a 403b, which has close to $5,000 in it. I plan to roll that over to my new employer's 401k plan. I can't contribute until six months into my new role, though I'll be fully vested day one. Because of this, I plan to aggressively contribute for the first six months I'm in the plan at a rate of 10%. I have a 4% employer match, so a total of 14% to catch up for those lost six months. After that, I plan to go down to a 6% contribution for me with the 4% employer match for a total of 10%. Question, is this a good strategy? It's a good strategy. It's a fine strategy, but it also puts a significant amount of pressure on you to contribute later in the year. Plus, right now we're in the midst of this down market. And should it turn and come roaring back, I don't want you to miss that run-up, miss putting money in at these lows. For that reason, I might make an IRA contribution in the interim. And even if you decide that's too complicated and you don't want to do that, then I would put aside the money 
in advance of making this new contribution so that at least it's sitting there and you're not under huge pressure to save. Thank you so much, Jean. Her third question, she writes, my savings is in a healthy place at $15,000. So I want to take the $750 to $1,000 a month I project I'll save each month and invest it elsewhere in addition to my 401k. My question is, what's the best way to do this? I spoke to the financial planner associated with my 403b at my old employer, and they recommended aggressively contributing to the new 401k at the new employer. They also said I'm not eligible for a Roth since I'm married but file separately. I was confused as I'm not over the income limit. The planner said he didn't think a Roth was the best idea since my new employer didn't offer it, and he said I wasn't eligible. I make $95,000 annually, and I'm married filing separately. What's my next best step? I'm exploring an account with Elevest and want to do something women-owned. I'm also looking at Robin Hood. I don't recall you ever talking about these companies or companies like them, and I would be so grateful for your advice. And if you think a brokerage with one of these companies or revisiting the Roth is better. I'm looking forward to diversifying my portfolio, but I'm unsure where to direct. So it's interesting, Catherine, as these questions get pieced out, you get more and more information. So the financial advisor's right about Roth eligibility if you're married filing separately. For 2022, married individuals filing separately can only contribute to a Roth if their modified adjusted gross income is less than 10 thousand dollars and you also can't take the full deduction if you contribute to a traditional IRA the deduction phases out completely if you make at least ten thousand dollars and so you're clear about that the financial advisor was right and my suggestion would be first of all that fifteen thousand dollars for your savings is that a full emergency cushion for you If that's not a full emergency cushion for you, and what I mean is, would it really cover three months of your expenses? Then I would beef up my emergency cushion. I would just put the additional savings there. If you really feel like the $15,000 in savings is enough, then looking at a discretionary brokerage account, a taxable brokerage account is a fine thing to do. And if you want to do something women-owned and looking at Elevest is absolutely a fine thing to do. Their algorithm takes into consideration the fact that women are likely to live longer than men, which is a good thing. But Fidelity, just for reference is also women-owned, primarily women-owned. The CEO and chair of Fidelity is Abby Johnson, and she too is a woman. So you don't need to just limit yourself to a firm that is marketing itself to women. The more important thing is that you make the decision between a brokerage account and fully funding that retirement account. And I know I said three months, which is usually my rule of thumb in a dual income family, which it sounds like you are. But coming out of the pandemic, I have also heard from a number of people who feel safer with a full six months emergency cushion. So you might want to take that into consideration too. Great advice. Thank you, Jean. She goes on with her fourth question. She says, other details about my financial picture. My vacations are saved for and paid for separately through 2022. 
I have a student loan balance of approximately $57,000, but I will have them forgiven via public service loan forgiveness. Yes, really. I am proud to say my months are tracked and I am 16 months away from forgiveness. I own a condo with my husband in D.C. and we owe approximately $540,000, which sounds like a lot, but our mortgage is manageable even with fees and repairs, akin to what a two-bed, two-bath rental would amount to in our neighborhood. My husband does not have student loans, and we file separately due to the public service loan forgiveness. He makes a very good salary, and our combined income is approximately $245,000. We're frugal. We cook at home a lot. Neither of us love to shop or buy lots of things, and when we do go out, we're reasonable. I know this is a lot of details. I'm just at such a place of transition, and as I love your advice and podcast, I would be so grateful for it. I also believe other millennial women at a crossroads financially like me might appreciate this. I have found my 30s to be such a time of reflection and intention when it comes to finances, and I want to set myself up wisely and strategically. Thank you, Jean. Katie, I think you're doing great. I really, really do. I think just the fact that you were able to lay out so many details in this letter tells me that you have a really solid handle on your finances, and I'm glad that you're thinking about it. I mean, as I go through questions one, two, and three all together, I think I come back to just leaning a little bit harder into that emergency cushion. To me, with your income level and with the mortgage, that $15,000 that's put away, that's one roof. That's one compressor for the air conditioner, and you may have two. So I just think having a little bit of additional money in that savings account would make me feel better about this whole picture. And then six months from now, you can go full bore into the 401k. Love that. Thank you so much, Jean. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. Today's episode is also sponsored by Honey. I'm a big online shopper. No surprise. Always have been. It saves me time. And thanks to Honey, it sometimes saves me money. If you haven't heard of Honey, it is a free shopping tool that basically scours the internet for the promo codes that are available and applies the best ones that it finds to your cart at checkout. Honey recently saved me 20 bucks, for example, on a new pair of running shoes, and it was super easy to use. When you check out, the Honey button drops down, and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons. Then you wait a few seconds as it searches, and if Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the price drop before your very eyes. And so if you're not using Honey today, you could be missing out on some savings. It's free, it's easy, and it only takes a few seconds to install. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash hermoney. That's joinhoney.com slash hermoney. And in today's Thrive, If you're thinking of making a move from a city to the suburbs or debating whether to rent or buy right now because things have just gotten so expensive everywhere, we have a checklist for you. At hermoney.com, we break down how to decide where you should live. For starters, skyrocketing rents in major cities across the country are forcing even those of us who swore we would never ever leave to rethink the years ahead. In New York City, rents are up by 33%. In San Francisco, 
20%. Even in smaller cities like Nashville, rents are up by 15% over the last year. And while the housing market is far from affordable right now, there are still deals to be had and prices at long last are starting to come down. Cities including LA, Richmond, Detroit, Chicago, Memphis, and others are already reporting falling housing prices. So no, please don't be one of those people out there waiving inspections and paying $200,000 over asking. If you are considering making the shift from a walk-up and a brownstone to a white picket fence and a three-car garage, first research the town. Before pointing to a random town on a map and hiring a mover, think strategically about your potential new location. To do this, consider your current lifestyle, your habits, what matters to you the most. If you love to go on walks and you need a community that allows for that, then find one. If you like having easy access to grocery stores and coffee shops, you may want to be closer to the center of town. Parents should also research schools and get an understanding of the recreational activities available. Also remember the realities of having a home. If part of moving to the suburbs is so you can afford to purchase a home, Remember, even once you come up with a down payment, you are responsible for any and all expenses once you are your own landlord, including maintenance, landscaping, appliances, electricity, plumbing, and everything in between. And by the way, do not forget to factor in the cost of a car. If you've been accustomed to taking the subway or biking everywhere, get ready for the price of gas. Car payments, insurance, and upkeep will also be a sizable addition to your monthly spending. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Shannon Monson for the candid conversation about women and work and how we're going to be able to shape the kind of workplaces we want most. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.